before we begin, let me just say that we need to be careful how we understand things that we say, things that we sing, and how do we how do we understand the words that we have just sung? Earnestly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. We know from Scripture plainly that when Jesus calls, what we call an effectual calling, that he not only gives the call for a sinner to come to him for salvation, but he also gives all the means, all, all the means and in-betweens to get there. Uh, and we know that it is an effectual call because, well, because it's effectual. It's effective. It works. It, it is. Uh, it does the work that he intended. But I, we who know that, Christians, sometimes we find ourselves we find ourselves sinning. We find ourselves living daily life as though we are not the redeemed of the Lord. We need to be sensitive. I mean, yes, oh, I, I heard the effectual call. I responded to the effectual call of God. We need to be sensitive for the call to repent, for the call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. So many things on my mind that, that uh, I could say, but we need to get started. We need to, we need to do this. So please turn in your Bible once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we are in chapter three of our systematic exposition. This chapter, if you have looked ahead, you know, especially the eight, the first eight verses are very familiar to us thanks to a popular song. So I thought instead of reading the scripture, we'd just sing the song. No, not really. We're gonna, we're gonna read the text. <laughs> Instead of singing the song. So we're going to read chapter 3, uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend or tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Verse 9, what profiteth, what profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he had set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from beginning to end. And I know there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken away from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which has been, is now. And that which is to be, hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. And moreover, I saw under the sun, the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? God, we pray that you would bless your word to your people, the reading and now the preaching. Bless the Messenger, bless the message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1959, Pete Seeger wrote a song, or he sort of wrote the song. Uh, this song that Pete Seeger has credit for writing also is the song, the popular song that has the oldest lyric of any song on Billboard's charts. The oldest lyric because King Solomon actually wrote the song. This song would later be recorded by the birds and in 1965 it would go to Billboard's number one in December. The main part of the lyric is taken directly from this text in Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, as I read the King James Version, you recognize the, the, the words. I, I think as I read the verses, I heard some of you saying, turn, turn, turn. As I, was, I, I think I heard that. I don't know. Maybe. The, this text of Ecclesiastes is, is often understood differently by different scholars who approach it with their own preformed ideas. 
and sometimes they get it very wrong. We've looked at some of that in the past. Some people have gotten it very wrong. And I, I think that's exactly what Mr. Seeger has done here. Uh, Mr. Seeger held a strong anti-war conviction concerning the conflict in Vietnam. And he read the words of Solomon to be a call to peace. As a matter of fact, that's the one thing he added to his song. There's still time for peace. But as we consider the text in its context, we will see that Mr. Seeger was in error in his interpretation. Now, I would like to say, even 50 years after the end of Vietnam, U.S. involvement is still a topic charged with conviction and emotion for many people. So I want to be clear that in saying Mr. Seeger was in error, I am not weighing in on Vietnam or that war in any way. We are not talking about Vietnam this morning. We are talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And my point is that the interpretation that Mr. Seeger applied, it, it suited his purposes very well. He's, he's probably made a lot of money from that. But it's not a good understanding of the primary meaning and the primary purpose of the text. So as difficult as it is for some of us, as we, as we work through this text, I want you to not think about the psalm and instead, let's turn, turn, turn our minds to the scripture. That's the last time it'll happen, I promise. First, let's make some observations from the text. We instantly see in these eight verses that there is a cyclical nature to life. There are actions and there are reactions that we might call equal and opposite. Birth and death, killing and healing. Tearing down and building up, getting and throwing out, sound and silence, war and peace. Uh, I love the fact that it mentions rending or tearing out and sewing together. And my wife is a sewer. Um, I, I saw a plaque somewhere that said, if you see me with a seam ripper in my hand, don't mess with me. I, I know that those days that Stacy says, I had to rip it all out. That doesn't mean she had a good day. That she means I had a bad day. I had to rip it all out. So, so as we consider these verses, we consider the, the, the highs and the lows and, and the things that the preacher lists for us here, we think of them as good things and bad things. We, we think of them as things that we rejoice over. What is listed? Birth, building up, sewing together, love, peace. We think of those as good things. And then in this text, they are paired with their opposites, which we consider bad. The things that we mourn over, like death 
like tearing down and tearing apart like hate and war. But while we tend to think in these terms of good and bad, the preacher presents these things, all of these things, as having their place, as having their time, as having their purpose. Some of us, some of us will have a hard time with this. We wonder, when would it be the right time, for instance, for hate? When would it be the right time for hate? We, we think that love is good and hate is evil. Why would there be a season when hate is fitting and appropriate? And we struggle with this. How could that be? But we need to remember that love and hate demand one another. Love and hate demand one another. How can someone say, I love weddings without saying, and I hate divorces? How can someone say, I love life without saying, I hate death? How can someone say, I love babies and not say, I hate abortion? Love and hate demand one another. These things are not exclusive. They are all necessary. So the preacher is giving us these necessary seasons, which we all encounter. We all have times on the mountaintops and we all have times in the valley. We celebrate at the birth of a baby and we mourn at the death of a loved one. We have we have days when we are bringing home shiny new stuff. And we have days when we are throwing out stuff. It's the same stuff. And that's the, the cycle and that's the, the cyclical nature of life that the preacher suggests here. And he's reminding us of these cycles, the ups and the downs. But he has it in chapter three started. Well, first of all, let's be reminded Solomon didn't write at the top of his new page. Chapter three. The chapter numbers, the chapter divisions were added later for our convenience. I'm glad they're there because just this morning I was able to say, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter three and you all knew where to go. We're glad they're there. But this is not a break in Solomon's thinking. He's not starting a new subject. So we need to remember where we've been. We need to remember what he has already pointed out to us in chapter one and in chapter two, particularly at the close of chapter two. The monotony of the weary go round, he told us in chapter one, is by the hand of God. And then in chapter two, he told us the enjoyment of the fruit of our labor is from the hand of God. Who can eat and have enjoyment without God, he asks. God is sovereign over all things. And now we come to chapter three and we read about these seasons for everything. A time for this and a time for that. Well, who sets those times? Who makes the seasons? This is not set by you or by me. We would never have a time to tear out, would we? We would never have a time of loss. We would never have a time of death. We would never have a time. We don't set the seasons. These seasons are also from the hand of God. 
They come from his sovereign and providential rule over all things. So it's not only as we read the, these verses, it's not only that there is a season for everything and a time to every purpose, but that God is the setter of the seasons. Isaiah tells us that God knows the end from the beginning. And we ask, how does he know? How does he know the end from the beginning? How does he have that information? It's because he's the author. He's the maker. He is the determiner. He is the one who determines the end before anything ever begins. God is sovereign. And, and that's what Solomon has been telling us. He's sovereign over all. And we see this in these verses. And we see it as we read verses 10 and 11. This travail of life is from God. He gives it to the sons of men. He gives it. So God is sovereign. Verse 11 says he makes all things beautiful in his time. That's King James. Uh, it may be better understood. He makes all things. He makes all things beautiful because they are fitting. Because they are appropriate. God does. God does a thing. And God does things in his time. And he does the things he does in his time and they are fitting and they are appropriate and they are beautiful in that way. But we still have a reaction to life under the sun. We are still disappointed in this life. It is vanity. It is vapor. And the preacher agrees with us in verse nine when he asks the question again, what profit? What profit? What is the net profit? What is the lasting value? What is the enduring benefit of life under the sun? And we've been seeing that there is nothing lasting or enduring under the sun. Remember, he's given us a summary or, a, or an introduction in chapters one and two. And now we will drill down into the things that he has talked about. And we see that there's nothing enduring. There's, there's no net profit as long as we are only considering life under the sun. And you and I, as well as so many who have gone before us, we have this inward conflict as we observe this messy, out of kilter world. And Solomon gives us the reason that we are so conflicted. Verse 11, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Also, he has set, the King James says he has set the world in their hearts are he has set the world in man the new american standard and the english standard give us a better idea he has set eternity in the heart of man the heart of man is not created only for life under the sun we are not supposed to be fulfilled we're not supposed to find fulfillment in this temporary plane we have eternity in us we are made for a world beyond the here and now. So as we look under the sun, we find it impossible to find meaning, to find purpose, to find profit. So for the vanities and the various vapors of life, all these little puffs of smoke, verse 12, we know 
We know that there's no good in them but for a man to rejoice and do good in his life. And we can rejoice and we can do good in our life. This is this is this is how we are to live. Uh, this reminded me of the Micah passage that we read this past Wednesday night. What does God require of man but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? Not to right every wrong and straighten every crooked thing. But to rejoice and do good in life. And we get some fleeting pleasures from our labor, verse 13. But then as we come to verse 14, where the preacher, having made these observations about vanity and vapor of life, having recognized that all things are from God because God is sovereign, he now makes this declaration concerning God's work. Whatever God does is forever. Whatever God does is everlasting. With all the temporariness, the vanity, the vapor, God is working eternal things. God is working eternal things, things of heaven and hell, matters of salvation and redemption. And what God is doing is good and lasting, is, is everlasting. It's eternal. So, so no child of God, no Christian can complain that God is not making my temporary stuff better because he has provided for you eternal life and endless joy. And we'd also have to add most of the time he is also improving your temporary stuff. But at least he is giving you eternal blessing. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, this stuff that we have to endure now, boy, we complain about it, don't we? Let's learn from Paul. He says, this light affliction. What are you going through? Say with Paul, it's light affliction. It's just a light affliction. Paul says this light affliction is but for a moment. And God is ultimately using it to work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God is doing a thing and what God is doing is good and it is eternal. The preacher continues in verse 14, this eternal work of God, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away. Well, that's humbling, isn't it? Do you think you're helping God? <laughs> if you think God's program is resting on your participation, my advice to you is quit and see how long God paces the floor. Whatever God is doing, whatever God has you doing is only for your benefit. He can do all this without you. Whatever he has you doing, it is for your benefit. His purposes will be accomplished regardless. Your involvement helps you. 
You don't enhance God's production and, and you can't hurt it. I've had people tell me when they didn't like the sermon or they didn't like the something, people are going to die and go to hell and it's going to be your fault. If you want the details, I'll tell you that story later. Do you know what power those people were assigning to me? That I could stay the hand of God? Nothing and no one will stay in the hand of God to accomplish his good pleasure. God does. He does his will. What God does is eternal and no one can add to it and no one can take away from it. And, and at the end of the verse, it tells us why. It's that men should fear him. It's that men should fear him. And this is not a slavish fear. This is not the terror of an evildoer. This is the fear of a child which comes from the love of his father. Now, my children are all grown. They, they wouldn't admit this when they were younger. Maybe they didn't have the wherewithal to put it into to words. But, but later, some of them have told me, Dad, I feared you. But I feared you when I was doing wrong. I feared you. Can I just tell you what that means? In the times they should fear. <laughs> and we should fear God. We should fear God as his children, the children of a loving heavenly father. And in considering this, look at, look at verse 15. The first part reminds us of the cyclical nature of life. There are no new things which bring change to the game. What has been is what is and what will be is what has already been. Then we have this statement, God seeks what has been or God seeks the past. God looks to the past. God looks to things that have already come to be. What does this mean? God requires what is past. The idea here is that God is judge and he looks to what has been for his judgment. And Solomon introduces this idea of justice in all that God sovereignly does in all this mess of life. Remember, God is the righteous judge. We remember from chapter one that the world is bent out of shape and we want to straighten it. God has put that in us. He has put in us eternity. He has put in us a sense of justice and right. Even after the fall of man, and, and I think you'll appreciate this, even when some people need their sense of justice and right to be recalibrated, the sense of justice and right is still there. We are a people who when we see something that we deem to be unjust, when we see something that we deem to be evil, we cry out against it. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not equitable. God has put that in us. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. That wickedness was there. Where there should be good judgment. 
There's wickedness. Oh. Well, there should be, look at the place of righteousness. Iniquity is there. It should be right and it's sin. In verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Crying out for justice and righteousness, the preacher takes comfort. He takes solace in God as a righteous judge and we should find comfort and solace there as well. God will judge everyone righteous and wicked alike. And as we move to verse 18, we're reminded that the preacher is brutally honest in his assessment of life under the sun. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them that, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. I, I could tell the first time we read that that it made some of you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing that befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, as, yea, they all have breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and turn again to dust. Yeah, it makes us uncomfortable. But we need to, in our assessment, in our reading, and in our understanding of what Solomon is saying here, we need to be fair to the preacher and know that he understands the difference between man and beast. Solomon is not teaching us that man is just another animal, as some would have us believe. That's absurd. Solomon would know that's absurd. And when you hear it today, it's still absurd. He knows and he has pointed out to us the superiority of things which are unique to men. He has said wisdom is better than folly. And both wisdom and folly are unique to mankind. Animals are not wise. Some of you, I need to tell you, I need to just hold your face and say, your dog does not feel. Your dog does not think. Animals are not wise. Animals are not foolish. Animals act on instinct. Solomon knows differences between men and animals, and, and men are made higher than the animals. But that is not the point that Solomon is. He's making another point, And what he says here serves his point. The point is this. Animals live and men live. Animals breathe, men breathe. Animals die and men die. And when men die, considering life under the sun and these physical bodies, we turn to dust. And when animals die, they turn to dust. He says in verse 23, he says it outright, we all came from the dust and we all returned to the dust. And, and if you look at life under the sun, then we all have the same conclusion. We all come to the same end, death and dirt. 
Now, now in the last chapter, Solomon has lamented that the wise man dies the same death as the foolish man. He's, he's already said that to us last chapter. Now here he's, he's bemoaning the fact that men die the same death as animals. Animals, animals don't get caught up in building an empire of vapor. But we do, don't we? We, we get caught up in building an empire of vapor. And, and men and women, when we try that, we will eventually prove the futility of life by dying. Animals live, man lives. Animals die, man dies. And we go back to the dust. Before we consider verse 21, I, there's something that could be confusing here. And I want to I want to give us an illustration to help us understand. So I want to give us a verse from Proverbs 31 10. You don't have to turn there. I think it's a familiar verse. It says this an excellent wife who can find an excellent wife who can find. Now, is that verse an excellent wife who can find? Is that verse teaching us that it is impossible to find an excellent wife? Is that verse teaching us that the excellent wife does not exist? An excellent wife, who can find? That, that's a unicorn. That doesn't, no. That verse is not teaching us that, that there are no excellent wives or that it is impossible to find an excellent wife. That verse is pointing out to us the rarity of an excellent wife. The great value of an excellent wife. That's what the verse is teaching us. An excellent wife, who can find? And that word, who can find, should be an incentive to a man looking for a wife to look well and to find an excellent one. Don't take the first wife that comes along. Look well and find an excellent one. An excellent wife who can find. Now, now we come back to verse 21 and we see this same kind of language, this same kind of phrasing to get us here. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Here the preacher is not saying this thing is unknowable. He's not saying nobody has this knowledge. No one possesses this information. Who, who can talk about the spirit of man that goes up and the spirit of the beast that goes down? What he's saying is so few people know about this. This, this whole understanding of the soul of man this is a rare thing. Most people live as though they are unsure if the spirit of man is eternal. Or, or when a man dies, is he just dead like Rover, dead all over? Even if men say they have the information, oh yeah, I believe in heaven. Often they live as though this life is all there is. So we, we see what he's saying here in verse 21. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Who, who is living? Who, who not only knows this, but who's living like they know this? 
Where is this around us? And by the way, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward? It, for you ESV readers, there have been some good theologians who have suggested that you mix the word whether. Who knows whether the spirit of man goeth upward? Because it's not needed and it is unhelpful. Solomon is not asking the question of who knows whether a man's spirit. He's saying a man's spirit goes up, but who knows this fact? Who knows this thing? Who, who knows? Can we say it like this? Who knows that all dogs don't go to heaven? Who knows that? Friends, this, this information about the spirit, the soul of man is knowable. It is noble. The scripture is clear that God has created man in his image. Unlike anything else in creation, we are made after the image of God. God has created man with a reasonable soul. And friends, we never cease to exist. Every human soul will exist for eternity. Now, we don't exist for eternity past. God does not have a warehouse full of eternal human souls that have been there as long as he has been. And when a baby is born, he inserts a human soul. There's a, new, there's a creation of a human soul. From the creation of that human soul, we never cease to exist. Every human soul will eternally be in heaven with Jesus where there is no pain, no death, no tears, full glory, or it will be in hell without any of the mercies of God where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is no annihilation of a human soul. We are made after the image of God and we will never cease to exist. And scripture is clear that God has provided a way for fallen, lost men to be redeemed, to be ransomed, to be rescued from the torments of hell. These things are knowable. That way that he has provided, the only way is through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. We have created within us as part of who we are to consider eternal things. That's what he meant when God has put eternity in man. We have in us to consider eternal things. We have in us to know God through Jesus Christ and to worship him. You're, you're not like your puppy dog. You're not like an ape. If you live your life under the sun, as though under the sun is all there is, then this life is the best you will ever be. say it again, let that sink in. If you live your life under the sun as though under the sun is all there is, this life is the best you will ever be. 
sad to live in this messy, bent world and know that this is all the peace you will ever have. Well, preacher, I'm not living in peace. I know. That's why it's so sad. This is all the peace you will ever have. This is all the joy. This is all the fulfillment that you will ever experience. And this is no good. How sad indeed. But in verse 22, we have this message for all men. If you're dead, after you're dead, it's too late. After you're dead, he's, the idea here is that you're not going to come back and check up on things. And see how what you left behind is being managed. You're not going to come back and check up on things. Do you remember the Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man wanted to say, Let's, let, let me go back and warn my brothers. No, there's no coming back. You're not coming back to make adjustments. After you're dead, it's too late. So in this life under the sun, we must set our hope on things eternal. We must set our hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. I perceive that there is nothing better than that man would rejoice in his own works for that is his portion. Life under the sun, this vanity, this vapor, this striving after the wind. But we do get a brief moment of joy from the fruit of our labor. So Solomon is teaching us enjoy life's fleeting pleasures. Enjoy life's fleeting pleasures, but keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eye on things that are not under the sun. And be thankful to God for his sovereignty and for his goodness. Now that's what we have before us in this chapter. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we, how do we live in light of what the preacher has given us? I have three things. First of all, accept God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. There's a season for birth and a season for death, for planting and for pulling up what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up. There's a time for weeping and a time for laughter. But even in death, even in the pulling up, even in the killing time, even in the tearing down time, in the weeping time, don't waste your time fighting against the sovereignty of God. Don't get embittered at the providence that God has given. An old, an old preacher wisely told me one time when I said, this is the way it happened and I wish it hadn't been that way. And he said, don't question the providence of God. I'll never forget that moment. Don't question the providence of God. Don't question his goodness. And that leads us to the second application. Accept God's sovereignty and then walk by faith. Now walk, uh, when, some of our, when some of our modern Bibles translate walk by faith or walk, they just say live. I like the, I like the ideology of walk. I like the word picture that it gives us because it's applauding. It's one foot in front of the other. And that's what we're doing in this life. And we are to, in this life, accept God's sovereignty and walk 
by faith. In, in the ebb and flow of life, when things are in a constant state of change, believe what God has said, even when you can't see it. Even when you can't see it, believe what God's word says in spite of what you do see. There's an old saying, are you going to believe what I say? Are you going to trust your lying eyes? <laughs> that, that old saying was so that somebody can lie to you. But let me tell you something. When it's believe your eyes or believe the word of God, the word of God is true. The word of God is right. Let God be true in every man, including your eyes, a liar. Walk by faith. Believe what God has said when you can't see or when it is in opposition, seems to be in opposition of what you do see. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but those things which are not seen are eternal. Accept God's sovereignty and walk by faith. Faith. Don't judge God to be good when we are laughing and dancing and celebrating birth and then judge God to be evil when we are weeping and mourning loss and death. Trust him. Tell him. Go to the Psalms and learn this. Tell God you're hurt. Tell God your frustration. Tell God how you feel. But trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Walk by faith and not by sight. When things look bad, trust that God is good and that he is in control and he will deliver you. The psalmist said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Christians, God is not going to start forsaking his children today. Walk by faith. And finally, rest in God's righteous judgment. On the final day when things are set right, the crookedness of this world that stirs your spirit will then be resolved. What a day. Injustice will be judged. The unrighteous will give an account. All those who oppose God will be cast into everlasting damnation. And will eternally give tormented testimony to the justice and righteous wrath of God. Amen. And those who are God's children through Jesus Christ will finally live in his presence. We're already over time, I might as well tell you. This week I heard a song, a song that I grew up with. I'm not going to tell you the song in case it's your favorite. Okay, Beulah Lane, sweet Beulah Lane. You listen to that song, and when you get to the part about Jesus, I'll let you work through it later. It ain't there. I'm homesick for a country, gates of pearl, streets of gold, walls of jasper. longing for that place. Can I tell you something? If Jesus ain't there, it ain't heaven. 
There's a better song. Jesus will be what makes it heaven for me. Christians, we will live in the presence of our dear, sweet Savior for eternity. And not only in his presence, but because, <laughs> because of his love for his children, we will live without the presence of sin. We can't even imagine what that's like. What, what is that? <laughs> we can, well, we can imagine. Wow. We can, we can look forward. I can't wait. I can't wait. I, I pray that God would do a work in me and in you to make us like Christ, to set our hearts and our minds, to set our appetite, as it were, to that day. So that when that day comes, we are ready. We are ready. The conclusion, when we've heard it all, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply these things to our hearts. Help us, help us, God, to know how to, without sin, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of life that you have provided, that you have given. Even today, we've read scriptures that is, that is spoken to us about these things that you have given us in this life that we might enjoy. Help us to enjoy them to your glory. Help us to enjoy them to the glory of your name. And God, help us to not focus our attention solely on the pleasures of this life, but to keep an eye focused on eternity, to keep an eye focused on our Savior. Give us, give us perspective, heavenly perspective, biblical perspective, Christ-like perspective. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name.